Two Sundays ago, as we began Genesis chapter 3, we kind of established a bit of an outline. The fact that Genesis 3, very critical, crucial even, to our understanding, not just of the book of Genesis, but really the entire Bible. Without Genesis 3, so much of the story would kind of be confusing. Genesis 3, it's fundamental. It's crucial. And really, it addresses two ideas, two concepts that every philosophy, every worldview, every religion has to address. First, chapter 3 provides for us an explanation for the human condition. Like because of, of man's rebellion against God, what has happened? People are broken. Society fails to function as God intended, and the world no longer operates according to God's created order. As a result of man's rebellion, Genesis 3 answers these questions. If you've ever wondered, why am I so messed up? Or why is Zach so messed up? The answer to that you find in Genesis 3. Why does society fail to function like it should? Why does the world no longer operate according to this design? Well, Genesis 3 answers these questions. So it's an explanation for the human condition. But secondly, Genesis 3 also provides for us a hope for the human condition. Because of man's rebellion against God, we also see in chapter 3 that God enacts a plan for the redemption of humanity. We'll see that this morning. Secondly, you'll see in chapter 3, because of man's rebellion against God, it's God then that establishes gender roles so that marriage, this institution he founded before the fall, could still function as he ultimately intended. And then thirdly, God uses this chaotic world to serve as a constant reminder of the consequences of our rebellion. These two ideas really provide a full outline for chapter 3. Now, as we get back to our text, we'll dive in at verse 12, but let's get a running head start looking back at verse 7. We're told that then the eyes of both of them, following Adam eating the fruit, were opened. And they, Adam and Eve, knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves covering, coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife were told, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then verse 12. So the man said, this is his reply. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Admittedly, there are two ways that you can view Adam and Eve's response. Traditionally, Bible scholars kind of cast their reactions, their response to God, in a bit of a negative light. Most scholars will claim that what we find here is Adam shifting blame to the woman and God, the woman God had given. 
And then Eve does kind of the same thing by dodging, shifting blame to the serpent, that we find both of these two people dodging, avoiding responsibilities. If you've, if you've heard this position articulated, most will do so by inserting into the text kind of their own tone to kind of justify the position. Let me reread these couple verses to just kind of accentuate how people will cast uh, the tone here. Then the man said, the woman you gave me, it was her. She gave me of the tree and I ate. So woman, what about you? It was the serpent. You've heard it kind of framed that way. Now, while it's true that shifting blame for our sinful actions um, is a natural response of the unrepentant heart. How many times have you been called on the carpet, caught red-handed, and immediately you go into blame mode? Some of you have finished school, and you've gotten failing grades, and your immediate reaction is what? It was totally me. I totally procrastinated. My IQ is like 31. I'm just not good at that. No, You'll, it, the, that teacher, that teacher was terrible. Or I lost my sight in the middle of the semester. You know, like we'll come up with dumb reasons to provide an explanation. We'll shift blame. Why did you commit adultery? Well, she wasn't sleeping with me anymore. Or she didn't show me respect or this, or that. Isn't it true that for the unrepentant heart, like there's just something in us when, when we're caught that we want to blame others. Now that's all true. The problem is, is that I don't think that's what's happening here. Like I, I'm not convinced that this is the attitude that Adam and Eve had, that that was their, that the attitude behind their response. Like consider, consider from what we read, that while Adam and Eve initially hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The very moment we're told they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, right? So they hear God, they hide, they scatter. But then when they hear God's voice cry out, where are you? What happens? Both Adam and Eve are willing to make a very brave decision to step out from their hiding place in order to stand as they were fallen before the God of the universe. Like that, that's why I don't see then this blame game, this traditional way of viewing their response. I, I'm not, I don't buy it. Like consider, if you just read, as we did, the substance of the text without inserting any preconceived tone, it's interesting that every single word both Adam and Eve utter is 100% true. Like they're not making anything up. They're not telling fibs. They're not telling lies. Adam acknowledges what? That he willingly ate the fruit because it had been given to him by his wife, the wife that God had given him. The woman then is honest that she ate the fruit. Why? Because she'd been deceived from the serpent. Neither response seems to be a dodge of responsibility, but rather a simple recounting of events. Instead of shifting blame, I see their response to God as really being nothing more than the continuation of something very important that's already happened. Repentance, transparency. That they're just admit, this is what happened. 
Like the, the, the fact they initially acknowledged their sinful state by coming out from the trees in which they were hiding to stand before God in their nakedness, only to then honestly recount what had happened. I think it demonstrates repentance and mainly faith. And as a result, so the Lord God, verse 14, said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Let's get into it. Now, if you weren't with us two weeks ago when we began working our way through Genesis 3, it's important I just reiterate for a moment the fact that I made the case that this serpent was not necessarily a literal animal, but was more likely in a physical appearance, the most amazing, majestic creation of God in all of the angelic host, Lucifer, also known in scripture as Satan or the devil. That when you're reading the serpent, that it's not a slithery snake talking to Eve, but it's actually Lucifer in his glory. We built the case. You can go back. You can, le- you, can, you can read it later. You can look at it later. But I also made this point that I believe that then in the tempting of Eve, that it was ultimately Lucifer's pride. It was the manifestation of his pride. And therefore, God's cursing now of the serpent is actually his ultimate judgment. Like, notice that God's judgment of Satan here in the text we read plays out in two distinct ways phases. First, God said, right, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, while I will admit it's entirely possible that God may be cursing a pre-fall version of a snake, that before this edict, maybe possess the ability to fly like a dragon, at least walk around like a lizard, in addition, mind you, to being able to talk. If I were to be honest with you, which I will be, that kind of view, it just seems weird to me. Like if you suppose, as many do, that Lucifer had indwelt an actual serpent, then God's cursing of this animal appears at a minimum to be misplaced, at worst, cruel. Like in that scenario, the serpent would have actually been the only innocent party. Like, how can you hold the serpent responsible? He's been possessed by Satan, and yet he gets cursed. What a bummer. That's a raw deal. Now, what is clear is that as it pertains to the serpent, this curse, on your belly you shall eat of the dust of the earth all the days of your life. This curse seeks to de-exalt the creature. We know that. For, For whatever status the serpent maybe had previously enjoyed, because of his actions, you have done this. We're told that the serpent would be stripped of his standing forever. The reason I think this de-exalting pertains not to a literal serpent, but to Lucifer, 
is the fact that the imagery we find, this idea of, of being cast to the earth, on your belly you shall eat of the dust of the earth, that imagery we actually find in the two passages in Scripture that record Lucifer's fall from heaven. Same imagery. Let me, let me read you two passages. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 15, we're told by the prophet this, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will send into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Then in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 17, thus says the Lord, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I will destroy you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, your corruption. You, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. Note the, the phrase, I cast you to the ground. I lay you before kings that they may gaze at you. So I, I think the cursing here, this de-exalting, what we have described here is not the snake being stripped of legs, so he has to slither around, but instead the de-exalting of, of Lucifer's position in heaven. That Lucifer, as, as the most majestic of all of the angelic hosts, as the worship leader of heaven, we're told in other passages, that Lucifer's pride, that he wanted the worship of God. And so in the act of tempting Adam and Eve, he's fallen, and thus we get this curse, this de-exalting to the ground you're cast. You no longer have the access or the glory that you once held. Now, aside from losing his position in heaven as a consequence of his actions, in verse 15, we kind of get the second phase. Because God here gives an amazing, fascinating prophecy. He says, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is how silly things get. I heard multiple pastors use that as a justification for why women always hate snakes. <laughs> I hate snakes, but I think they're kind of missing the point. Anyway, I will put enmity between you and the woman obviously speaking of Satan and not a snake. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In order to understand what God is saying here, it's critical that we first identify who the he, did you notice the, the pronoun in the text? Your seed, he shall bruise, he, right? We get this weird transition into this masculine tense, he, this he that's going to bruise Satan's head. you got to identify that individual to make sense of what's being communicated. And, and, and note, the phrase, he shall bruise your head, it, in the Hebrew that spoke of a fatal blow, as opposed to a less impactful bruising of one's heel. There's a play on words. You're going to take a bite out of him, but he's going to kill you. You're going to go at him with all your might and just nick him but he's going to crush down on top of you, this fatal blow. 
Now, we're not given a ton of information as to this man's identity, but we are given some clues. First, Satan's ultimate foe, according to Genesis 3.15, would be a he. Now, I know that's a simple observation, but it is an important one nonetheless. God is clear right from the beginning, directly following the fall, that Satan's death blow would not come from another angelic being, but instead from a human being, specifically a man, this masculine tense. And yet, also keep in mind, according to this prophecy, this he, this man, would not be a normal man. God tells Satan, in the presence of both Adam and Eve, so they're hearing this, that this man would come from her, speaking of the woman, her seed. Now, I don't think I need to go into a biological explanation of how peculiar that is, how significant this idea of her seed is, because let's be honest, in procreation, the woman doesn't have the seed. That's kind of the man's role. Um, if you're confused about that at all, uh, talk to your mom. Even if you're 35, she'll answer you. Now, what this does tell us is that a future man who is going to destroy Satan, is going to save mankind, this man would be born of the woman without the involvement of a man. Instead of the woman conceiving a child with the seed of fallen man, a fallen male descending from Adam, this conception would take place using a supernatural seed, which it has to be because women don't have a seed. So your seed, her seed, it has to be a supernatural seed, presumably provided by God himself. Not only does this text tell us this coming man would be divine and therefore would be sinless because he received none of his masculine genetics from fallen Adam, which is important. Romans 5, verse 12, we're told through Adam, not Eve, through the man, not the woman, through Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus, Paul says, death spread to all men. And yet this man would not come from Adam, would come from God. See, God makes it known right from the beginning, the uniqueness of this man's character and his identity, but he does something else really fascinating. He indicates to Adam and Eve how they will know the man has arrived. He gives them a clue that his coming would be easily identifiable. How many virgins have conceived? Only one. You see, right here, we're given an indication of the virgin birth. God's telling Adam and Eve, when the virgin conceives, when I provide through her seed, like, just take note to that dude. He's, gonna, he's different. Keep your eyes open. As a matter of fact, Isaiah verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, we're told, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, says the prophet. A sign that the Messiah has arrived, that the Savior's arrived, that this man prophesied in Genesis 3.15 has arrived. 
the prophet says, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Now, why is any of this important? For starters, God is communicating a message to the man. I think all of this is for the benefit of Adam and Eve, so they know some important things. First, while Satan may masquerade himself around as an angel of light, he does that today, please understand he's been de-exalted. Satan might present this image that he's glory, and yet he, is not, he has been de-exalted. He does not possess the glory he claims. Satan is a fallen creature who's been stripped of his status. Secondly, no seed of man, God's clear right from the beginning, no seed of man would ever possess the ability to stand alone against the enemy, nor the power to ultimately save mankind. According to this passage, God is making it clear to Adam and to Eve that the only one who would possess both the power to destroy Satan and the ability to save man would be this he, the seed of the woman, who we come to know as Christ Jesus. Finally, while Satan may roam this world as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy, we know he was, in the end, declawed by a much greater lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 3.15, this is all by faith looking to something that was coming. Today, we get to look at Genesis 3, verse 15, with the clue of what happened, of what took place, of this bruising and this crushing. We've seen it on Calvary. Satan may have bruised his heel, but on that same cross, Jesus effectively crushed his head. This morning, take courage that Satan has forever been dealt a crushing blow, his fate eternally sealed. While we mortal men have stand no match against the enemy, this masquerading fool was no challenge for the heavenly man, Christ Jesus. Today, you and I can stand victorious against the enemy for one reason. 1 John 4, verse 4, He who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. If, if you don't have Jesus, you're no match for Satan. He will sift you. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he's no match. Verse 16. So to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. All right, let's get into it. As a consequence, as a consequence of the woman's rebellion, we see here two things result. First, God says, if you look at it again, in bringing forth children, there would be sorrow and pain. It's interesting that in Genesis 1, after creating man and woman, God told them, gave them a great command, be fruitful and multiply. Like as God designed it, procreation 
was supposed to be this glorious, incredible command that humanity was to enjoy and have fun doing with producing babies, also being an equally glorious without pain exercise. And yet, because of sin and its consequences, that command to be fruitful and multiply, while still something we're to do, would now carry with it certain difficulties for the woman. Like, you do real, like for the man to be fruitful and multiply, that's still an awesome, awesome command. Like, like I mean, it's, it's uh, I, I have no pain in suffering. Like, being obedient to the Lord when it comes to that exhortation. I will be fruitful, and as long as my wife allows me, multiply, you know? And yet, while it's still an awesome thing for the man, with, for the woman, it's all changed a bit. Like it's sin, it's a corruption. Like not only, and this is what's important, I think a lot of people miss it, not only would the entire process of conception become described now as labor, what an interesting word, right? It's labor. I've seen it twice. It is labor and terrifying. Anyway, um, not only would, would conception become labor, but what's also implied here is that raising children would also be painful. Like it's not just bringing them into the world that's, that's painful, but that, then it's, it's raising them that's also painful. Like though child rearing is incredibly rewarding, I think every mom in this room will attest that raising children also comes with deep pain and sorrow it doesn't just start at birth, but the burdens that, mother, that mothers carry for their children. It's how God designed it. The aching heart of a mom. Barbara Walters, she said, motherhood is tough. If you want a wonderful little creature to love, go get a puppy. Ain't that the truth? Oh, a mom. Notice the other aspect of, of this consequence. In addition to the difficulty and pain of, of childbirth and rearing, God says, quote, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The way this is presented in the Hebrew establishes a struggle. Like in essence, God is saying to the woman, your desire will be to rule over your husband. But, it will be his job to rule over you. Now, please keep in mind that God created man, male and female, so that while positionally equal with one another and uniquely distinct from each other, complete oneness could be found in marriage unity. We've talked about this. And note, marriage, the only institution that predates the fall. It's part of God's fundamental blueprint for man. Now, before the fall, while gender differences had always been necessary for marital oneness, male and female, now that sin has awakened self within the hearts of both the man and the woman, gender roles and now gender responsibilities within marriage, within this unit, also have become essential. 
It's the consequence of sin. That God says for marriage to work now in this fallen state of two people equal, distinct, becoming one, for that to happen now that you're both sinners, consumed with self, this is what needs to roll. The man needs to lead and the woman should submit to his leadership. That's what God's saying here. If you're ticked off about it, you got a problem with God. I'm just the messenger. Now understand, this concept of a man leading and a wife submitting is not only just introduced here in Genesis 3, but please understand the concept is reiterated over and over and over and over again, all throughout scripture, claiming that as with gender distinctions, these roles functioning within marriage communicate a larger spiritual picture, that they're tied to heavenly traits, heavenly things, that God really cares about these things. Some will say, oh, well, that's antiquated, right? I mean, in the garden, I mean, that was like a long time ago. Well, okay, it took like 4,000 years to get to the New Testament or whatever. And then it's reiterated again, same thing. Like God has not shown to be changing his mind as cultures change. They're in the garden and then you get the same thing in first century Rome. This trajectory hermeneutics is nonsense. Let me give you a couple of examples of where this is reiterated. Ephesians 5. Verses 22 and 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, uh, excuse me, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. 1 Peter 3, 1 and then verse 7. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what's critical to your understanding of these roles, the, the man leading and the woman submitting, is the reality that because the fall resulted from the actions of what happening. Think about it. Adam did what? He submitted to Eve. Take this fruit, okay? On the flip side to it, what, what did Eve do? She led Adam. Yo, honey, take this fruit, okay? Like we, we had this blending, this, this, this convoluting. And because of that, because that ended up being a natural thing, God commands them both to fill the opposite roles now for marriage oneness. Now you might say, that's cruel, right? <laughs> like if, if we're naturally good at this and naturally good, then, then why have the man do something he might not be good at and the woman do something that, that she might not be good at? Why is this conflict existing. Understand, because self, awakened by sin and the man and the woman, must be supplanted by the enthronement of and submission to God's Holy Spirit for oneness to now be achieved in marriage. God created responsibilities in marriage that would force both the man and his wife to do something that would deny self and force them to submit to God's spirit 
for the ability and the strength to do what might not come naturally. It's all about getting self out of the way for oneness to occur. In addressing the importance of these gender roles, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 and verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. For a man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from the woman, but woman from the man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now, in, in, in dealing with that particular topic in a series called A Manly Revolution, uh, Pastor Sandy Adams, he makes this comment, and I think it, he unpacks it brilliantly. He says, here is God's chain of command. The father leads the son, the son leads the man, the man leads his wife. And recognize the truth that God the Father is head over God the Son. But in that, it does not diminish Jesus in any way or make him inferior. Likewise, a man's headship in the home and in the church doesn't diminish a woman. The first woman, Eve, was from and for her husband, Adam. She was taken from his side, and her role in the relationship was to stand by his side equal. The fact the male came first and the female followed reflected God's governing principle, male headship and female partnership. This doesn't mean women are inferior or, and this is important, should be dominated by men. That's a sin. Instead, it calls on men to lovingly lead and women to willingly let them. Two different roles that if you'll adopt and implement in marriage, corrupted by sin, it'll contribute to oneness. When you abandon those roles, you will find over and over and over again, oneness is very difficult. It's very difficult. Verse 17. Then to Adam... God said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of you, from out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Let's look at what came as a result of, of Adam's sin. We're told God cursed the ground. Keep in mind, the earth and everything that God had made had been given to the man to have dominion over. As man submitted to God, his work would be fruitful. And yet now that man has rebelled against God, the earth will now rebel against man. His work turns into labor. Relationship with God the earth submits to man. I rebel against God. The earth rebels against me. God allows it to be such. And why is this the case? He says, cursed is the ground, note it, for your sake. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you shall return. God created man to be fruitful and multiply, as well as to subdue and have dominion over the earth with both activities being designed to be enjoyable and satisfying. And yet now, because of sin, these pursuits will only prove to be frustrating, to be empty. Why? Because God cursed them for man's sake. They're not to be fulfilling. You see, the purpose of God cursing man's work, the purpose of earth's rebellion against man, 
The purpose of neither now providing satisfaction was for man's sake. It was for his benefit. To do what? To remind him always of his rebellion and to force him to set his eyes back to heaven for satisfaction and not the earth. For man, God cursed the earth and for the woman, he cursed childbearing. So that, and this is what's fascinating, when either a child was born or a harvest reaped, what would happen? It would serve as a reminder to man as to the fact that all life manifests from what? From my sin, from my work, from, no, from God's grace. That every child born is a gift from God. That every harvest yielded is a gift from God. Why? Because in childbearing, it was supposed to be painful and the earth was supposed to rebel. So anytime these things work, we're to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's your grace. It's a gift from God. That's why in Hebrew culture, when a woman was barren, when she was unfruitful, it was viewed with such a negative connotation that she must obviously been enduring a special dose of the curse. That wasn't the case. The only way, friend, that you will find fruitfulness and satisfaction, whether it be your work in the world or your work at home, Satisfaction, fruitfulness, and these pursuits only takes place when the activities themselves flow from a restored relationship with God. Apart from that, you will find them to only be labor, toil, frustrating, joyless, and unsatisfying. We call it a rat race. Well, verse 20, so Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, I've done you a bit of a disservice in the first three chapters because this woman, taken from Adam's side, became his wife. Her name up until this point has actually been woman. Like that was her name. Adam sees this babe walking. Whoa, man, woman. That was her name, woman. Woman, that, I mean, that, now I've kind of, as we've worked our way through it, I've thrown in Eve, right? Because it just feels weird always saying woman, you know what I mean? So I've kind of thrown in Eve, though that hasn't been introduced yet, just because that's the common name we all understand her to be. But now, and this is what's important. Following the fall, following these consequences, Adam's immediate response is what? God, God curses Lucifer, this fall, the serpent, Dulls out with the woman, man gets curses the ground for your sake. Adam's response to all of these things, it's kind of weird. He decides to rename his wife. Like, woman ain't good enough. You're going to be Eve from here on out. And we're told why, because Eve means mother of all living. Eve literally means life. It's where life comes from. Now, we understand that even before the fall, the woman would have been the bearer of all life, right? That's where life comes from. Human life comes from the woman, right? And yet the purpose in Adam in this instance, renaming his wife, it was designed to communicate a much larger reality. Once again, tying in with this understanding that everything that's happening here has been, been motivated by faith, faith in God. You see, in light of the fact that death had now entered the human condition, and an act of faith. Faith in what? 
faith in the promise that it would be through the woman that a savior would come, that the restorer of life would be provided by God. And in act of faith, Adam renames his wife Eve, saying, through you, God is gonna give a promise. And that promise is gonna save us. And we hold to that and we believe in that and we're waiting for that. There's an expectancy even right here before they've been cast out of the garden that God would provide a savior. So he names his wife Eve. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. We'll get to that next Sunday. But the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, these are angels, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's some aspects of this. I have no idea. Like, where's the garden of Eden? Don't know. Uh, Where are these angels? Not sure. Uh, how about the flaming sword? Can we find that? Would make great, it, would, it would make a great fifth Indiana Jones movie, like finding the flaming sword of Eden. I'd be totally into that. Regardless, I have no idea how to answer any of those things, so let's just get to what we do know, and that's something fascinating. You notice it? We're told, look at it again. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, right? And then... Just a few verses later, we see God does something else, right? Do you notice it? That God now drives out the man. Before then, putting armed guards and a flaming sword saying, you're not getting to the tree of life. Like not only does this indicate that man was resistant to God's command to leave, that man didn't want to leave the garden, that he didn't want to go, but it also illustrates for us how determined God was to make sure that no mortal man would ever have access to the tree of life. It comes up over and over in this whole passage. How difficult must this have been for God and man when the full weight of his consequences, right, come falling onto his shoulders, when God's like, you gotta go, man, out into that world. And Adam's like, but, but, but we can stay in the garden right now. You can't, but, but seriously, man, can we, no, you can't, you got to go. Well, can we get our stuff? Yeah, but you got to pick up the pace, man. You got to go. Like they're dragging their feet. And finally he has to force them. He evicts them. That's not nice. Can you imagine, but the, but the heart of God, he had made all of these things for whom? for Adam and Eve. He had made this garden for them to enjoy. And now he's got to forcibly remove them from the very thing he crafted for them to enjoy. And why? Because he wouldn't allow them to have access to the tree of life. He cast them into a barren world from the garden, a world that man would now have to till the ground from which he was taken till he dies. Now, understand, man is given here. He starts this new existence in a new world that will be characterized by toil and suffering. But he's been given a promise, right? God has a plan. God is going to redeem. We messed it up. We mucked it up. God's got a remedy. 
They can trust that. But note the first step to the remedy, death. It's death. Because of man's fallen condition, not only could he no longer remain in the Garden of Eden, he had forfeited that life and the world that God had created for him, but God also found it prudent and one might even say gracious, to eliminate his access to the tree of life, thus ushering in death to the human existence. In his mercy, what we find here is that God would not allow man to live forever in his fallenness. I hope you know, man was designed to live forever. Like death came as a consequence of sin, which is why when we experience death in our lives, our bodies, we, we can't figure out how to cope. You know, there's five stages of death. There's five because all five of them don't work. We filter through all kinds of emotions because our body's trying to figure out how to deal with something we were never created to deal with. And yet, now that man has sinned and he's fallen, God boots them out, keeps them away from the tree of life. He ushers in death because he doesn't want to allow man to be forced to live forever that way. It really is a fascinating thought, isn't it? That man would want to stay in the garden of life in this sinful state. That, he had, that they had to be forced by God into this world of death. Now, on the surface, we can understand that, right? We can sympathize with his reasoning, living, way more appealing than dying. But the perspective is short-sighted. Let me explain. Think about it. Eternal life lived in a fallen state, separated by God. <laughs> That's the very definition of hell, isn't it? Like, honestly, it would have been just for God to have allowed man to live eternally in his sinful condition. Man deserved such an existence because he had chosen such an existence. And yet, God graciously eliminates here at the end of chapter 3 our access to the tree of life he institutes human death in order to do something that's really interesting, to separate our lives now into two basic sections, the temporal and the eternal. Death is a divider. Like, in a sense, God allows every man a taste of hell. We're all born into a fallen condition, into a fallen world. Every man, every human being alive knows firsthand what life separated from God is like. And yet, because of the sweet mercy of death, such a state does not have to last forever. Like if you choose to reject this fallen world and seek to be reconciled to God through his Savior, death ends your tor torment as you instantly enter his glory. However, if you choose this fallen world and reject God's Savior, death is nothing but a continuation of your torment as you are cast forever from his glory. The incredible reality of death is that it affords man the choice he would never have been given if he had remained in the garden and retained access to the tree of life continue forever in hell, this hell, or choose a new life to be lived eternally in God's presence. 
I'm so glad God kicked us out of the garden because we have a choice. Death allows the temporal man an opportunity to choose a different existence and an eternal state. What follows death, our afterlife. It's kind of like God gave all men a test drive of hell so we'd know exactly what it was like. Like this world, this world is the best that life apart from God will ever be able to afford. It's a world with man at the helm. So if you like what you see and you would prefer an existence without God, if you're like, this world is awesome. I want this forever. Then God will actually honor your choice when you die by allowing you to live for the rest of your eternal existence apart from him. Now, don't get me wrong. I I absolutely believe in a literal hell, and it's worse than this, okay? But the reality, in its most simplistic aspects, you have to choose, do I want life with God or without? And if you make a choice now that I want life without God, he will honor that decision by allowing you to live eternally without him in hell. Don't think for a moment that you can reject him this temporal life and then magically decide, hey, let's hang out forever. No, that's not how it works. If you do long for something better than this life, this fallen world, I hope you know that not only did God send his son Jesus to make a way for a better life, but the eternal life that he offers, (laughs) it, it doesn't start when you die, it starts when you're reborn. That you can have a taste of heaven even here in Jesus. It's been said, for the believer, this life is the closest to hell some are ever going to get. And yet, for the unbeliever, this life is the closest to heaven some are ever going to get. It's a sobering thought. In Christ, The lowest point of this earthly life will be the lowest it'll ever be for you. Amen. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that encouraging? No matter how bad it gets, that's as bad as it'll ever be if you're in Jesus. It all goes uphill from here. But apart from Christ, the highest point of this life That's depressing to think that that might be the best it'll ever be for you. That it goes downhill from there. The garden. It provides an explanation for the human condition, but it also provides a hope for the human condition that God is not reserved to allow us to stay in this state but he sent his only son, Jesus, for he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that those who believe in him might have everlasting life. 